You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. privacy and actionable intelligence that can be used to help save lives is not some ideal. It's possible today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. On this show, I've got the story of law enforcement using enhanced Stingray technology. Ben explains why IBM is no longer pursuing facial recognition technology. And later in the show, my conversation with John Ackerley. He's the CEO of Virtue Corporation. We'll be discussing protecting our right to privacy in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Well, Ben, let's uh, start off with some follow-up this week. Uh, I got a couple of kind notes from some listeners, both having to do with, why don't you describe what we were discussing? It had to do with their lock screen on their phone. Yeah, it was a case in which a court had to determine whether there was a search when law enforcement turned on the phone for the purpose of taking a picture of a lock screen. And we did get some very friendly criticism of some of the things we said, which I'll, I'll let you describe. Okay. Uh, Well, the first uh, one came from a listener. Uh, They wrote, in the most recent uh, caveat and the daily podcast, Ben refers to the FBI both taking the photo of the defendant's lock screen and pressing the two buttons to take a screenshot. It seems to me that pressing the two buttons to take a screenshot on a third party's phone is of absolutely no use to the person wanting that image, since the image remains on the device. It would seem to me that the issue at hand is really the FBI taking a picture of the lock screen with a different device. I'd say this listener is right on with that yeah. criticism. <laughs> I guess it was a it was a clumsy attempt at a at a metaphor, and this listener definitely got us. Uh, but, yep, yep. Uh, but the listener is absolutely right. Uh, obviously, the device in that case would remain in the hands of the person for whom the law enforcement is trying to obtain information. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it would be taking a picture of what you see on a lock screen after you turn on the device. Right. And to that point, we had another listener write in and they wrote, gentlemen, I think you missed a point about what could possibly show up on a lock screen when someone opens a phone or turns it on. There could be incriminating information in terms of notifications and other pop-ups that could be considered evidence. Good point. 
Yeah, also a good point. I think I had mentioned that, you know, perhaps like his alias was listed there. Uh, I think we also referenced pictures that might be on on your front page. But, you know, absolutely what could uh, really be revealing is the notifications you get. If, you know, I left my phone in the other room and came back three hours later and, you know, looked at the notifications I received, I could probably get a pretty good idea of my interests, my affiliations, my friends, my enemies. <laughs> so, yeah. You should be ashamed of yourself, Ben. <laughs> I, I would be not as ashamed of myself as I am uh, for apparently messing up the segment so badly, but, but ashamed nonetheless. So, uh, yeah. yes, to be more precise, I think it is notifications that one would be concerned about, as well as yeah. potentially your lock screen picture. Uh, but probably right. most likely it's, it's going to be those notifications. I think it's worth noting, uh, at least on iOS, and I don't know uh, what the case is on Android, but on iOS, you can sort of dial in how much information those notifications will show depending on whether or not the phone is unlocked. For example, uh, I have my device set where if I get a Twitter notification, uh, if you just activate the phone, it'll just say Twitter notification. But if I activate the phone and it, it unlocks with Face ID, it'll say Twitter notification, but then actually show the tweet. So you can dial in how much it shows depending on whether or not it knows it's you or not. <laughs> right. right. So, you know, you could have your iMessage be from co-conspirator, let's go commit crimes. Uh, if you right. don't <laughs> adjust your setting, that message is going to show up on your lock screen. Right, right. If you do adjust your settings, it'll just say iMessage from co-conspirator. Right, so right. Uh, that's, you know, something if you want to protect your private information on your device, that's a very easy step you can take, uh, not yeah. having those messages uh, revealed on the lock screen. It does mean that when you wake up in the middle of the night and receive a text message in your sleeping stupor you will have to unlock your device with facial recognition <laughs> or some other method instead of just hastily glazing uh, at your phone so there's right. that all right well thanks to uh, both of those listeners for sending in those comments we do appreciate it uh let's move on to our stories uh, ben why don't you kick things off for us this week so this one really caught my eye. It is from the news source, The Verge, and the headline reads, IBM will no longer offer, develop, or research facial recognition technology. This was revealed in a letter written to Congress by the CEO of IBM, Arvind Krishna. They sent it to Democratic members of both the House and the Senate. And they said that they oppose the use of facial recognition technology, not only the technology that they've done research and development on, but technology offered by other vendors. And the reason they are coming out with this broad opposition is the potential for mass surveillance, racial profiling, and violations of human rights and freedoms. And they said that they're writing this letter now and they're instituting this policy in the wake of the protests we've seen over the past couple of weeks that emanated from the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis. And so I think this is a, a really profound announcement. It's the first of its kind, to my mind, in, in its industry, that IBM really wants to press a pause button before we know more about facial technology and its biases and its potential to identify people uh, on racial terms, gender terms, etc. Before we have a full understanding of that, we need to start a national dialogue. We need to think about what our values are, what the purposes of this type of surveillance, and how we will protect people's 
privacy and civil rights. And until we can do that in the mind of IBM, we are going to not only cease our use of this technology, but we're going to call on other companies as well to abandon facial recognition. So I think this is a a really groundbreaking announcement, and we'll see if other companies will follow. I mean, I think one thing we've seen in the wake of these protests is there has been a reckoning on the part of corporate America as it relates to things like systemic racism. So, you know, every company from Apple to Subway sandwiches uh, and everyone in between is putting up some announcements, you know, talking about their values related to what we've seen in the protests. And this is the most concrete step I've seen a, a major corporation take in trying to reconsider its policies. Yeah, it's interesting to me. Obviously, IBM being such a big player in the space, also, of course, a, a household name. For them to come out and say this is certainly noteworthy. Uh, it made me think of of Amazon, who is another big player in the space, I suppose they could come at this two ways. They could either say, we join you, IBM, in putting a pause on this and, and considering this technology, or they could go the other way and say, hey, hey, more business for us. Right, woohoo, <laughs> full, full market share on uh, facial recognition. They're obviously not the only ones who might be able to take advantage of this from an economic standpoint. Right. We talked about Clearview AI in our podcast earlier this year, an up-and-coming facial recognition uh, company that uh, scrapes from social media accounts, which obviously caused some controversy and some loss. You know, this isn't the first time that IBM has tried to address some of the biases in its artificial intelligence and facial recognition software. They released a public data set back in 2018 to help all the industry players reduce bias uh, in order to make the data more reliable. Now, one thing this article mentions is while that effort was laudable, they were also found uh, in a separate case to be taking a million photos from Flickr, the photo sharing website without the user's consent. But nevertheless, you know, I think they have been industry leaders on this. Another thing that that I thought of is we are going to see some criminal court cases in which the key form of evidence has been facial recognition. So, you know, we saw you looting at a protest. We scraped your photo from social media, matched it up against a photo from the scene of the crime. Uh, and we use that evidence to uh, arrest you and put you on trial. If I'm a defense attorney, I bring this article to that proceeding and I say, there is a huge problem with the reliability and potential for bias as it relates to facial recognition technology. And my evidence for that is, you know, one of the largest and oldest companies in this country as it relates to any type of computing or information technology has put out this announcement saying, we're putting a pause on facial recognition technology. It's not as reliable as it should be. It could lead to false arrests, false convictions. I think if I'm a defense attorney, this is going to be a very valuable weapon in those cases. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, I, I suppose that reflects this moment that we're in, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is something that certainly would have surprised me, you know, three or four weeks ago before all of this took place. But I think kind of we're all considering our own role in our own way in, in perpetuating a system. And IBM, you know, I think is recognizing its role and they're, you know, trying to effectuate change in an area that they control. And I think the data is, you know, there have been enough studies on artificial intelligence and facial recognition for us to know that. There are biases involved. There are biases in the algorithms. There was that famous study where I think it was the ACLU was able to identify 
28 members of Congress picked from 25,000 public mugshots, even though those members of Congress had not been arrested. Um, So, yeah, I mean, they're recognizing the problem and I think they're they're being very proactive, even if it hurts their market share in trying to come up with a solution before we get further, deeper and deeper into this world of using facial recognition, particularly for law enforcement purposes. It'll be interesting to see uh, who gets on board as IBM puts uh, the industry on notice. Uh, this will be an interesting one to follow for sure. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's you know, if you're Amazon, do you care more about the social pressure or do you care more about your market share in, in facial recognition? And I think that's actually a, a pretty difficult question. You know, for a company like Clearview AI, IBM is is a multifaceted company that does a million different things. Clearview AI right. is more limited. So if they were to limit their artificial intelligence, facial recognition technology and wanted to take a step back, they'd probably be killing their own business. Whereas IBM can afford to do this because, you know, they still build so- all different types of software and hardware. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a little easier for them from that perspective. Yeah. My story this week, this comes from uh, Motherboard and uh, written by Joseph Cox. The title of the article is Agencies Spending Millions on Crossbow Spy Tech and Upgraded Stingray. Now, Ben, you and I love our stingrays on this love show. Love our stingrays, yeah. <laughs> uh, it is uh, something that I, I think uh, I'd hazard to say uh, we have a little bit of a fixation about, but uh, justifiably so, because I think it's uh, it fits right into the, the topic, ongoing topic of things we cover here. Absolutely. We've been talking about this one for years. Uh, I think one of our earliest CyberWire segments probably discussed stingray devices. So yeah. uh, this yeah. is, this is uh, you know something that we've been focused on on for a while. Yeah. So this article outlines how uh, some federal agencies and uh, some military agencies have purchased a device called a crossbow, which evidently is uh, an upgrade, a new version of the Stingray device, which, of course, the Stingray is the uh, cell phone tower simulator device that's used to catch your IMSI number from your cell phone. Basically, uh, law enforcement will set one of these devices up, turn it on, and uh, it pretends to be the local cell tower. And your cell phone then logs onto that device. And uh, through that log on, the uh, law enforcement can track you or know if you are in a particular area uh, based on that logging on. So there's this information they can gather. Uh, evidently, the folks who make these devices have a newer version of it. And the, uh, I believe it's the ACLU has, uh, through the Freedom of Information Act, has found that uh, several agencies have been purchasing these devices. These are not insignificant purchases either. They're hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases millions of dollars for these devices. Uh, one of the developments is that these devices can use 4G. Previous ones, I believe, were limited to some of the older protocols that your mobile device used. They would they would kind of force the device to downgrade its signal to the the older protocols, which is an automatic thing. That that's part of how your your cell phones work. Uh, but I guess these new ones are capable of using 4G, and uh, 
the enhanced capabilities that come with that. Uh, what do you make of this, Ben? So there are a couple of things that are particularly problematic here. For one, any Stingray device can sweep up personal information of people who just happen to be in a targeted area of the device that's targeted. Another thing this article mentions is that these types of IMSI catchers potentially interfere with somebody's ability to make emergency 911 calls. So obviously that has a very real-world effect. Uh, And then the ubiquitousness of these devices, as reflected in this article, is really eye-opening. So some of the entities that have purchased crossbow devices include the Department of the Army, Department of the Navy, U.S. Special Operations Command, and the United States Marshals. And that is in addition to state and local law enforcement agencies across the country uh, who have purchased these devices. So as you said, it's not like this is you know a pilot project for one local police department. This item is is on the market. It's being sold to some of the largest military institutions and law enforcement agencies in this country. This is another thing where transparency is a particular concern as well. They asked in this article, there's a quote from a U.S. Marshal spokesperson who gives you the non-denial denial saying, we will not reveal our methods to catch you know, dangerous criminals. Uh, right. So we're not going to tell you whether or not we have purchased these devices. But I think people who are cell phone users, which is most of us, should have a right to know whether the military or law enforcement has these capabilities to trick our devices into transmitting personal information. You know, I just think the public has a, has a right to that information. And so there's something particularly problematic that the only way we find out about this is through uh, FOIA requests. And another thing this article mentions, which I, I find fascinating, is law enforcement agencies find this technology so valuable that when you know a criminal defendant and his or her attorney has tried to get more information on Stingray surveillance, local law enforcement is willing to throw out those particular cases so that they don't have to reveal their methods. So you can understand why it's so incredibly valuable as uh, a law enforcement tool uh, if they're willing to go to such an extreme measure. Yeah, it it still boggles my mind that the FCC approved this device, that the FCC approved a device that pretends to be a cell phone tower that actively interferes with such a fundamental part of our communication system uh, yes, uh, it's for law enforcement and, and, uh, law enforcement, I suppose, has made their case, but I, I just, I just don't, that part I still scratch my head about that, that the FCC would approve something like this. And the, the other part, um, that I find interesting, uh, I saw some speculation on Twitter during some of these protests that, and again, I'll emphasize speculation here, that these devices don't pass along emergency announcements that are made through the cellular system. So, for example, in this particular case, they were saying some of the municipalities would put out a message that said, curfew goes into effect at 9 p.m. tonight. Right. Right. And there were people on the street who said, I never got that message. Some people got the message. I didn't get the message. And it was pointed out that these devices may not pass on those messages when they're active. If a message like that goes out because these devices aren't part of the actual network that's used to send out messages like these, the message doesn't get passed through them. So the message goes undelivered. And is there a potential 
issue is there a potential liability if an emergency message is sent out and because of the use of this device people are unable to receive that message when they otherwise would yeah it's it's a huge issue i mean you know i've spent a lot of time studying denial of service attacks on uh, public service answering points 911 centers these are supposed to be actions taken by malicious actors, cyber criminals. But the effect of what these governments are doing with these devices is pretty similar to what a denial of service attack on a 911 center can actually do, which is inhibit emergency information from going either from the government to users of a device or from users to the government. So we're in a pretty dark, disturbing place where, you know, we're, we're facing pretty severe, tangible effects of uh, putting this technology in place. People aren't able to get emergency alerts, potentially. People aren't able to dial 911. And, you know, I think there's a values question at play here. Is it worth it for us, you know, for however many criminals we are able to catch using this technology is it worth it to prevent people from making 911 calls, to sweep up innocent individuals' private device information, and, you know, as you say, to potentially prevent them from receiving emergency communications? Is it all worth it? You know, I think that's, that's a value judgment that policymakers are going to have to contend with, you know, both legislators and judges. Now, I will say it's really hard to make those policy judgments when you don't have full and complete information on how these devices work and how often they are employed. And that's why I think transparency is such an important part of this story. I think one of the quotes in this in this piece says the public judges and lawmakers cannot provide effective oversight without basic information about the capabilities of this new military grade equipment. You know, we see this all the time, whether it's stingray technology or aerial surveillance or cell site location information. You'll have law enforcement agencies say we're not going to confirm whether we're using this technology, but we're not going to tell you anything about it because you know, we don't want to reveal our methods. You know, I think the public has a right to know, even if they don't know all the details, what type of surveillance and what type of tools law enforcement is willing to use. Is it possible that someone could go after them using that avenue? Could could someone, uh, either an individual or, or an organization like the ACLU, could they say that the the fact that these uh, devices may be interrupting someone's ability to make a 911 call or receive an emergency notification, that's worth a lawsuit here? I don't think so. I mean – you know, I think these law enforcement agencies probably have lawyers <laughs> that will uh, protect them from lawsuit. You know, law enforcement generally um, has pretty wide latitude as long as it's not violating people's constitutional rights to engage in effective criminal surveillance. Uh, so I don't think there would be a proper cause of action, uh, even if, you know, one of these detrimental effects uh, took place. You know, that gets into a broader question. You know, sometimes any law enforcement action can do more harm than it does good. Uh, I'm sure we've, we've all read the news recently and understand the concept of qualified immunity, um, where it's much harder to sue law enforcement for potential injuries if it's in the course of their investigative work or law enforcement duties. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that that same principle is really at play here. 
All right. Well, that is uh, our uh, collection of stories for this week. We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, we have a call-in number. It's 410-618-3720. You can also send us a message at caveat at thecyberwire.com. Send us your question, and perhaps we will answer it on air. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with John Ackerley. He is the CEO of Virtue Corporation. Uh, our discussion centered on the notion of protecting our privacy in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's my conversation with John Ackerley. I think the relevant history really starts on September 11th, 2001. So I was the lead technology policy advisor and was actually in the West Wing when the uh, Twin Towers were hit and was really at the front lines of the response to those terror attacks. And uh, the Bush administration and the president were actually very focused on data privacy issues from the campaign in Austin and obviously all the way through uh, the aftermath of September 11th. And it was a very interesting time and a lot of lessons learned about how to respond and the importance of of, uh, transparency in that context. And one of the things, obviously, that came out of that was the Patriot Act. I'm curious, when you were in the midst of that, when you were in that advisory role at the highest levels of our nation, what was your own impulse there when it came to privacy? When you're in the heat of all those discussions, how did you process that yourself? So that's a great question. And I will never forget going into the West Wing on September 12th. And I worked at the National Economic Council under Larry Lindsay. And he said to us that, you know, by coming into work at that time, you know, we had an obligation and we had the uh, standing to potentially lean against uh, the winds of uh, changes that could be made in the context of what will be a fight against terrorism, but where there may be unintended consequences. And so it was in that context that there was a lot of back and forth around what came to be known as the Patriot Act. And without going into too much detail, because I think we should really talk about COVID, let's just say that going into those initial discussions with the Department of Justice, there were a lot of priorities and a lot of requests that had been made over the preceding decade and a half. And 
decisions were made around the scope of the response that was very controversial and was not fully you know, debated in the public eye. And I think when you fast forward 20 years, you know, we are paying the price for that in terms of public trust, in, in particular around data privacy issues. And a lot, by the way, you know, a lot of positive things came out of the response too. And you know, we'll always be proud of the fact that it wasn't a political discussion. There were no polls being taken around popularity. It was, in most respects, you know, an authentic impulse to move quickly in a time of uncertainty. But it just reinforced over time, and I think we're feeling it now, the importance for a transparent process. Because if you are going to put systems in place that people will adopt, people have got to trust them. And so that's what we're dealing with now. And we find ourselves now in, in another state of emergency. How does your experience from back then inform your perspective on, on the things you're seeing today, the conversations that are taking place now when it comes to privacy? In a way, there is a very big difference, right? And drawing too many parallels between September 11th and today really is not helpful. But I do think that you know one of the key similarities is there is a very important role for the federal government and policymakers to make on publicly stated principles, first principles, about how to enable a federalism and how to you know, build public trust. So for example, in this context, there has been no public statement that when it comes to health surveillance and track and trace, that the public and that the individual should be at the center of control, right? With true verifiable assurance that data is only used for its intended purpose for specific periods of time. And that kind of leadership, I think, would accelerate our ability to respond. 20 years ago, there was a lot of centralized action. There wasn't transparency. I worry that on topics of privacy and data, data being a vital tool that we can use to get back to opening the economy quickly, that we don't have that kind of central clarity and also not transparency. So I think there's a lot that the government could do today to accelerate things for us to get out of phase zero and into phase one and phase two. How would you envision that sort of messaging coming out of the federal government and specifically this federal government, the, the administration we have now and the, the situation we find ourselves in with Congress? Who could lead that charge? Well, look, I think that the natural place to a start is with the CDC, but have it be in so then in coordination with the White House. And I hate the term Bill of Rights, but it gets overused all the time and it didn't work very well from a privacy perspective with the Obama mm -hmm. administration, but I do think a clear set of principles about how to institute effective track and trace and contact tracing specifically would be very useful. Because I think there's sort of a almost a false choice being presented, and this is a generalization, but between the centralized systems that have been put in place to some positive effect in South Korea and in China, but where it's really mandated centrally, that as compared with a privacy-centric approach, which is fully decentralized and really relies on proximity-based approaches. So then around Bluetooth, 
So you have either sort of very privacy invasive and concerning approaches based on civil liberties on the one hand, and on the other hand, approaches that have a limited utility. And I think there is important work today going on across many companies where there's a path forward where you can both give the public confidence and control over the data, but encourage more sharing that combines things like proximity with sensitive health information that would make for a much more effective response. And so that's where the federal government and the CDC in particular can really lead here. And that's what I think is missing. I suppose, I mean, there's there's a real human factor to the messaging here as well, in that I can imagine a message put out that, you know, as a citizen, you know, do your part. If you're comfortable, here are the tools we put in place. Here's how we're going to protect your privacy. It's all out here. It's, you know, here are the privacy experts who've looked it over and said that it's good to use. But, you know, if you want us to start opening up um, our country again, we need everybody to step up and, and do their part. I think that's such an important point, and I'm very happy that you raised that. You know, it was not perfect, but one of the empowering things coming out of September, so then 11th, was the campaign around see something, say something, right? Getting Mm -hmm. people, you know, focused on how they can help keep others safe in addition to themselves. And I think in this context, you know, really a message around share something, share your most sensitive data and save someone. Like, with that public call to action, I think you can get the American public fired up about sharing their data to contribute to the response. And that's the kind of call to action that I think the country is really yearning for. And with the right kind of controls in place, we can do that. What about building in things like sunsetting for these sorts of things? You know, it's a, I think it's a common criticism that when these sorts of things are put in place, they, they tend to stay around for better or for worse. I think that's, again, a great point. And, you know, over the past 20 years, whether it's government or the private sector or the government and the private sector working together, you know, there has not been a reason to really have a lot of trust that because someone who for a period of time is in charge of a department says, hey, trust us, we will only use it for this purpose. The fact of the matter is when you have access to data, the urge to reuse that, and often in ways that the person in charge at that time thinks is beneficial to then his or her mission, I mean, that is just such a powerful impulse. And the problem is, so then administrations change, people change, and Mm -hmm. data can be weaponized. And I think it's incredibly important that it's not to kind of you know, taking just a trust us mentality is not going to work. You have to actually put in place cryptographic controls so that data can actually be revoked after it is shared with a third party system. And that is very possible today. And I think due to the lack of federal leadership, companies like Google and Apple are put in an uncomfortable position for actually having to set those kinds of trade-offs. And Google and Apple are saying, trust us, we are not gonna flip the switch and suddenly centralize control to the data that they are planning to build into operating systems. There is just sort of this weird place where there's not clarity. And what is gonna have to be put in place for these kinds of surveillance systems to be instituted in the US context, where there's gotta be voluntary opt-in versus coercion, is that kind of verifiable control where you can see what organizations are accessing your data and for how long and being ultimately able to revoke access to that data. I think that's going to be the path forward. 
so the important point is that the approach where you can have privacy and actionable intelligence that can be used to help save lives is not some ideal. It's possible today. And what is really important is that there is federal leadership in coordination with the private sector to drive very quickly to put those kinds of mechanisms in place. It really ties back to that verifiable trust and control. All right, Ben, what do you think? So I think the point that resonated most with me is that it's up to the federal government to take a leadership role. You know, we need to lay out some principles. The the key principle is we want to protect everybody's health and safety, and we want to do so in a way that protects individual rights. And I like that he invoked the see something, say something slogan that we all used in the aftermath of 9-11. I think that really did raise public awareness of our own role in protecting everyone's safety. And so, uh, you know, a similar public messaging effort where we encourage people not to be afraid of, you know, using applications to help us with contact tracing by saying, sacrifice a little of your personal privacy, potentially share your information so that you can save lives. You know, as he said, without that public messaging, it's up to the private sector to kind of determine uh, what direction the surveillance takes. And they're not subject to the same type of oversight that our government is. And I think people will be more reluctant to voluntarily opt into these programs without that sort of messaging and leadership coming from the federal government. Um, So I think, you know, the first step, as he says, is for the federal government to lay out principles. What are the values underlying what we're trying to do here? What's the balance that we're trying to strike? And why is it so important that we all engage in contact tracing, even if it potentially would sacrifice some of our privacy? And the the notion that, that this is a temporary sacrifice, if you will, for us to make, that yet it's important in this moment to give up a little bit of our privacy, but uh, we also need to be vigilant that it doesn't become forever. Yeah, you made that point uh, in the interview, I believe, that as we saw with the, the Patriot Act and other surveillance methods, once the government obtains these powers, it is very reluctant to give them up. And so I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely a legitimate concern about any track and trace or contact tracing operation. It's sort of hard to put the genie back in the bottle. So I think that needs to be part of, of public messaging as well. You know, the government needs to set out very clear timelines. We're going to do this for a period of six months, and it will be renewed as conditions on the ground warrant. So, you know, Mm. maybe in six months things are as bad as they are now. Maybe in six months we have a miracle vaccine or, you know, we're all drinking bleach or something and the the disease has been cured. Um, But, you know, I think just having some clarity as to – why we're doing this, the values underlying this action, and what the need is, why the need is so acute. And in the absence of that leadership, it's just going to be hard to get millions of people to voluntarily opt in to contact tracing. And the only way contact tracing works is to get millions of people to opt in. Um, right. Otherwise, you know, it, it doesn't help if there are only 10 people in whatever Apple and Google have set up for contact tracing. That's just not going right, to be right. very effective. Right. Well, our thanks to John Ackerley from Virtue for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. And of course, we want to thank all of you for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. 
Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Our thanks to the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security for their participation. You can learn more at mdchhs.com. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.